Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Barry Casson and Steph Voye. Hi, guys. Hey, Danny. Hey, uh, it's a sentinel time. Uh, Steph is speaking to us from uh, a different part of the world, and I think it's wonderful. Hey, hi, you guys. <laughs> hey. He makes yeah. it sound like you're calling us from, like, Morocco or something. <laughs> not, not as exotic as that. People, it's interesting, you know, I think there are a number of residents at UBC who do listen, uh, and they may not all be aware, but I've relocated to Salt Spring Island permanently. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm calling from there. So far, so good, I would say. I'm going to have a number of cool cases to present that are based here on the island. I've already got consent for one. So yeah, you'll be hearing about some different sort of case mix. And those residents, one of the residents approached me recently to come and do an elective here. So I'm hosting an elective resident oh, in October, great. which is that's say, awesome. like very exciting. Yeah, I'm happy to, to sort of keep my UBC ties intact. I think that's wonderful. I think being on Granola Island is wonderful. It is great here. Yeah. <laughs> if, if some of my takes are now a little loopier, it's, it's a contact high from the cannabis that's being smoked around me. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, um, today I'm actually going to be presenting a case. I don't think I presented a case in a little while. We've been trying to outsource. And uh, <laughs> anyways, this this is an interesting case, I think. I think it's totally in, in the wheelhouse of this group. If you don't get it, you lose the podcast. <laughs> no, no one knows this, but we've been keeping score. So you lose if you don't get it. I and, think I've already uh, lost I'll, the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's get started here. So this is Mr. T. He is a 64-year-old gentleman. Past medical history includes insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. His A1C is 8.6%. He has peripheral neuropathy, but no other end organ damage, as far as we know. He has coronary artery disease. I suppose that's an end organ. Uh, he had PCI to LAD in 2015. He has untreated hepatitis C and hypertension. He has no surgical history, no allergies. He's born in Canada. He works as a chef, light smoker, minimal alcohol, and uses uh, cannabis regularly. In terms of his medicine, he is on insulin, aspirin, ramipril, rosuvastatin, and rebeprazole. Pretty, uh, pretty st standard stuff. Pretty standard internal medicine uh, demographics. That's right. I feel like I'm on a mission. Right the to, middle. I'm on a mission to stop people's PPIs. Like, why? What is the indication for this man to have a PPI? You know, it's uh, yeah. It's a good question. I I think I, I must stop PPIs two or three times a day these days. You're just walking around the city swatting them out of people's hands, <laughs> or that's like in the clinic. In the cl in the clinic mostly. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> right. Cool. Okay. So here's the here's the history. In September 2019, he presented to hospital. He was in a different province, uh, and he presented with new onset chest and abdominal pain, and the abdominal pain was quite diffuse. We actually have almost no details of that admission or discharge, and actually he says he doesn't really remember it all that well. But the ultimate takeaway after getting a bunch of blood work, scans, seeing a bunch of doctors, is he tells me he was diagnosed with a rare cancer of the pancreas. He was then started on prednisone with a plan for urgent follow-up as an outpatient. He developed rapid onset of Cushingoid features, and he discontinued treatment after a month, and he didn't attend that follow-up. In fact, he, in that short period of time, actually moved to BC. And so a month later, he's actually admitted to hospital here in BC 
with an upper GI bleed. People initially thought that it was related to the prednisone exposure, but actually it ends up that he has H. pylori. During his admission, he has a, a, a number of other complications. He has severe DKA. He has substantial... DKA. Ab- Sorry, Danny, DKA? DKA. I think his sugars were in the 40s. He has significant abdominal pain. So another, uh, so a, a CT scan is done. So this is the first one that we actually have access to. And I'll read you the CT report. Ill-defined hypodensity in the pancreatic head with slight cyst draining in adjacent mesentery. Prominence of the common bile duct could represent acute pancreatitis. Non-opacification of the splenic vein in keeping with splenic vein thrombosis. So maybe maybe a quick pause there, and I'm wondering if anyone can kind of sequence those events. Is there some sort of Rube Goldberg-esque domino explanation? This caused this caused this, and we end up with a splenic vein thrombosis. What caused what? Are these things all related, or, or what's going on here? Okay, so, I mean, Barry, do you want to take a swing, or... Oh no, I'm I'm passing on this one. You're I'm gonna ready. you're gonna pass it to Dan to take a yeah, swing I'm, at it. No, oh no, no, wait, I'm, I'm presenting the podcast. Hold on, stop, now. Hold stop! On. Don't be a show. Don't a be swing. that guy. Don't be that guy. Yeah, just relax and sit back and listen to the the guy from the Granola Island. <laughs> so you know when I hear, so I would take a few things. I mean, part of we're sort of we're talking about cool cases here. I think we're also playing a game. You know, we're playing a game of like, let's see who can figure this out. And I do, I do in playing that game, I do want to sort of show how I'm thinking about a clinical case. I would say a few things. One is that the guy has hepatitis C and hasn't been treated for it, mm-hmm. and and you're a rheumatologist, and so I'm thinking about rheumatologic manifestations or complications of hepatitis C. So that's a thing that is is swimming around in my head, like. Like if there was something nice. in this in this presentation that sounded like cryoglobulinemia or something, then I would say, okay, like let's. I highlighted that at the beginning on my sheet, but none of this that's none of this sounds like cryoglobulinemia. And then he presented with abdominal pain. Sixty-four to me. I mean, it's not that like you can't develop hemoglobin purpura or something like that at that age, but so so again because you're a rheumatologist, that's why that kind of popped into my head. Still, none of this sounds like that to me. So then he's diagnosed with uh, maybe pancreatic cancer. I would say like that. I would say there's huge error bars around that until I've seen like pathology or imaging or an MRCP or something from Alberta or wherever it is that he came from. I would say like, who knows what that is, but there's some kind of pancreatic pathology that maybe was diagnosed at some point in some other place. I don't understand why he was started on prednisone. Like it sounds like those two things are related, but I I don't immediately see how. I think there are there are things like IPMNs that that get diagnosed and are generally sort of followed up for a period of time, but that they're not treated with prednisone. So I don't really understand what that is either. And then this hospital presentation with an upper GI bleed where he's found to have DKA, those two things could be related. You know, the stress of an upper GI bleed plus or minus like recently being on prednisone maybe maybe that could also be related to the dka and then these mm-hmm. findings on the ct scan the the only thing that to me is i mean so the hypodensity in the liver i think that needs further characterization along with the prominent common bile duct but the splenic vein thrombosis to me that's like that could be associated just with acute or chronic pancreatitis on its own or mm-hmm. you know could obviously be a harbinger of a malignancy so now I think we're probably talking about, so so can I put it all together right now? I would say, no, I can't, but I'm generating a problem list. 
that includes these CT scan findings. The problem is the DKA, it's a problem, obviously, but um, I don't think it, it may not provide us with much of a clue as to the underlying diagnosis here. The splenic vein thrombosis is a problem. The untreated hepatitis C is a problem. And then the sort of medical mystery of this previous hospitalization is kind of a separate problem. I, I would I would note that to myself only as a reminder that we need to try to obtain some previous documentation from earlier hospitalizations. Right. Yeah. And and I, I'm almost embarrassed to mention it, but in terms of like the roundsmanship of I'm a rheumatologist, so it's going to be a room case, I periodically do some CTU and some of the cases that I'll, I'll eventually present, which may include this one, are from CTU. Right. So right. do with I, that I, what you will. I had that sense. So, so let um, me just uh, jump yeah. in by saying that I'm Dr. Occam 99.9% of the time, but this presentation is by Dr. Hickam. Mm. And there is not enough information. I, I, I think that Steph has actually explored each of these areas without trying to tie them together. Because I think that tying them together at this point would be not only premature, but it would be it would be fantasy. With the exception of the prednisone exacerbating his underlying diabetes, I think the rest of it is hocus pocus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think we have enough information even to generate. I mean, all I'd say is I'd visit him in hospital mm -hmm. and see if he wanted me to bring him lunch because I have no idea what's <laughs> happening. You never visited me in hospital and asked know, to bring me lunch. I visited you all the time. That's the That's problem. That's true. You, he did. He did, Danny. You know, and I think, you know, I, I don't know if we've talked about that sort of Hickam and Occam dichotomy here very much. Uh, maybe people have, but like, you know, I think so. So Occam's razor is obviously a very tr attractive approach to cases or an attractive foundation to to look at a case from and mm -hmm. and i think often you know what happens is a case like this there's a lot of different pieces you can't start off assuming that they're all related but i but often it turns out that they are you know it's just that right now they're right. they're relate the relationship between each of these in each of these disparate seeming problems isn't clear doesn't mean they won't mm -hmm. end up being related it's just right now that their relationship is not apparent right and and also sequencing what is part of the same diagnosis and what is a consequence like, like you you mentioned like dka can be the kind of end result of all sorts of different physiologic stresses mi mm -hmm. um, infection etc so so it, could it be part of the the primary issue it could or it's a consequence of it Mm -hmm. And so you're going to spend the time in hospital trying to sort through that. Mm -hmm. So the other part is that, and the only, the, uh, all of these are observations, but the piece of information that is most puzzling to me, and I'm sure to the both of you, is that if prednisone treats carcinoma of the pancreas, <laughs> I think we should start a new series and, and have a trial, have a double-blinded randomized trial, because this would be new information. It's funny, obviously you're joking, but but I think all it is is a signal to me that we have a very poor understanding of whatever that diagnostic episode yeah. was. So mm -hmm. like I wouldn't, you know, I put very little stock in, into it other than to say something happened. He saw someone who thought he needed prednisone. Let's just do what we can to to track down that information. Yeah. Someone yeah. saw something and did something. Right. But that's so. that's all we can say. <laughs> but but I don't think, you know, I think some of these you know, I, it's obviously it's apparent to all of our listeners, both of our listeners or whatever, that I'm not the smartest person. <laughs> in, like, I think people know that I'm not the smartest doctor in the world and, and I'm okay with oh, that. Come on. But what I'm, what I do want people to get from this is like, 
there's a way, like it's not going to be on your Royal College exam, but there is a, a practical way to approach these cases. And so something like that, when there's an, a piece of information that's so uncertain, I think you can say, ah, who, who knows what that is? We'll never figure that out. Or you can say, well, someone out there knows something or, or thought they knew something. Let's at least make some phone calls, see if mm-hmm. we can figure out which hospital he was at, yeah. get some medical records and get those sent over. You I don't need that, to right. you don't need That's to be the great. smartest doctor in the hospital to do that. You just need to sort of cross your T's and dot your I's. Yeah, I feel like the, um, the detective that uh, does the legwork and kind of grinds through the case is more likely to solve more cases than someone who jumps to the conclusions all the time, like a savant. So so inter- so interestingly in in this particular case we weren't sure what hospital he was at. We didn't know any of the doctors that he was working with. And we didn't have a family doctor. So we actually did not have access to his primary records though that was kind of like step 1 was like even when we got the referral okay we like need to we absolutely need the discharge summary or some of the notes from his hospitalization. Like you said that he had cancer. So so does he or doesn't he? Okay. So in hospital he is treated with he required a blood transfusion because of the upper GI bleed. He required a procedure through upper endoscopy. He had he did require an insulin infusion, hydration, pain control. Uh, as I said, he was diagnosed with peptic ulcer disease, and that was treated. The splenic vein thrombosis was felt to not require treatment, and he was discharged from hospital. So there was no unifying diagnosis identified. And outside of hospital, he says that he's otherwise feeling fine, but he is vomiting once a day. <laughs> so hold on. Otherwise, which, I, excuse me. I'll just vomit, and I'll be back with you in a minute. I, I would say I would describe him as a total under complainer, um, and doesn't want to burden anyone with his problems. So he kind of he honestly thought that that was pretty good, and so he was kind of satisfied with that state of health. So he's he's a tough guy. Can I ask though the uh, um, the decision? Splenic vein thrombosis is usually treated. Mm-hmm. So and, and presumably. There was a rationale for not treating this. Um, not detectable in the notes, but I think that it was probably discussed at length in hospital. Okay, so, believe, so that it was like sort of a wait and watch. Yeah, very good point. That 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 probably factored into it. So so he's discharged from hospital in around December of 2019, and he is doing his thing until August of 2020. And at that time, he suffers a bike handle injury to the abdomen. With really, with really severe bruising at the site. It was really painful. Things get worse over the next couple of days. He doesn't present uh, on the day of the event because he doesn't want to bother anyone. He ultimately presents to the ER and a CT of the abdomen and pelvis is done. And this is what it shows. It says, mildly edematous appearing pancreas with peripancreatic fat stranding suggestive of acute pancreatitis. Common bile duct is dilated up to one centimeter with suspected wall thickening distally, appearance similar to November 2019, subtle nonspecific areas of wedge-shaped hypoattenuation in the bilateral kidneys, splenic vein thrombosis persists. What do you think? So I guess the new finding is the renal hypoattenuation. The pancreas appears to be acute rather than chronic pancreatitis on imaging. So how are we like, does that, is that the linchpin to a diagnosis for you or is that just more noise? So, so I think I'll start here. I, I mean, the uh, the CT is presumably done because of the suspicion of trauma mm-hmm. from the the bike injury, and uh, doesn't sound like. And, and I'm assuming, if I read the rec, rule out hemoperitoneum, rule out ruptured viscous, rule out that's right, baritis, whatever. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. It was yeah. a trauma scan, right? And so now now we see the information that 
may have been there independent of the bike handle injury. So this may be a, simply a progression of his underlying disease, which we still aren't certain about. And so I think I'd start back at the beginning and and I, I think I try to, I, I don't think I jumped to anything because I don't understand the first part. So the CT of the second part wouldn't be more helpful without more information. Mm-hmm. Steph, what's on your mind? And then he's got these wedges in the kidneys. These are presumably like renal infarcts or something. I think that's the suggestion, but they don't label it as infarct. Mm. I think that's interesting. Like to me that it, it further, you know, uh, my hackles are up that this guy has some kind of thrombotic or thrombophilic problem. And with that and with the splenic vein thrombosis, you know, I'm just, so he's got some either some procoagulable thing going on either an inflammatory thing or a malignant thing. His clinical presentation is not in keeping with acute pancreatitis, mm-hmm. right? Like he's not, he fell off his bike. Like unless he was also hammered at the time, um, he should not be presenting <laughs> with, with acute pancreatitis. So, you know, I think it, this is probably, he's got imaging findings of a swollen pancreas. And I would be thinking about that, why that would be. And I, again, like I would, I learned this from Barry, like you're getting, an imaging finding that is hard to reconcile with the clinical story. And so this is a case where I would walk down to radiology and talk with the interpreting radiologist and get a, get a, like an actual, have an actual conversation about it. You know, I'd mm-hmm. also want to know like what, what are his biochemical profile look like? Does he have a lipase that's elevated? Does he, was there any history of abdominal pain prior to this bike accident or whatever? Yeah, so I can give you some some of the basic labs that were sent. So there was no preceding abdominal pain. It was exclusively related to the traumatic injury. His CBC and renal function are entirely normal. His lipase is 76. ALT is 60. AST, 41. ALP is 189. GGT is 98. Albumin's 28. Billy of 6. His hepatitis B is negative, non-immune. And oddly in the eMERGE, they did a HCV viral load, and it's 145,000 genotype 1A. Mm-hmm. So, so I would say of yeah. all of that information, the only useful information is his hepatitis C status. <laughs> right. Because, yeah. I mean, that's the only actionable item at this point, because I'm not really sure it's, it's a gain. Uh, to me, it's somehow we're, we're, in, we're in two different paradigms. Mm-hmm. Now, can I ask you guys, so uh, just because you guys are, are, are so expert at this, with, I believe that's a normal lipase and mm-hmm. no abdominal pain attributable to pancreatic inflammation, all you have is the imaging finding, like, does that make pancreatitis? Can we label him as pancreatitis or do we have to label him as abnormal pancreatic imaging, NYD? Like, how, how do you actually label it in the problem list? I don't know if I'm being like the too latter. picky, but... No, no, the latter. And... And I think that's actually, you know, we moved over to a new electronic record at at our place at St. Paul's in, I guess it was the fall of 2019. And with that uh, move, the computer generates the problem list. Like you you choose from among Mm -hmm. thousands of diagnostic codes or or ICD codes or whatever. And the computer now sort of auto suggests codes for you based on what like sort of, you know, it it has like predictive text or whatever. So you put in pank, yeah. P-A-N-C, and then it gives you all the pancreas related things. So this, a problem like this will probably be labeled as acute pancreatitis on a, on a trainee's problem list or on my own problem list. But a more accurate for sure uh, diagnostic label at this point is abnormal imaging of the pancreas. 
And I think those labels mm-hmm. are a little bit important, aren't they? Like, because he doesn't even have signs on this imaging of chronic pancreatitis. There's no calcification, you know, like it's just a, he's got a swollen pancreas without any clinical findings of acute pancreatitis. So I think it'd be wrong to call this acute pancreatitis. And, and this bile duct that like, they're not saying that the pancreatic duct is swollen. It's the common bile duct is dilated. Yeah. Um, which sure you can see with the pancreatitis, but I think it, it, it raises questions about what the overall diagnosis is. Yeah. But, but I think that, uh, I think Steph's right. I think if we were, if, if we were putting this in a computer, we would po- call this pancreatomegaly, but we don't have that, that diagnosis. So it becomes, it defaults to pancreatitis mm-hmm. and, and bile duct dilatation in in the right context becomes a really important observation but in the in the, in another context in a bite injury how how do we even interpret that mm-hmm. uh, right so i think right. that we i think there's the, an imaging component that may have no relationship to him right and in, in the intervening months between these two hospitalizations there did he continue to throw up every day uh, yes, so he d- he would vomit once a day, and he says that he was otherwise fine; nothing really bothered him. So ongoing so for in, in eight a, months, he's throwing up every day. That, that's his report. Yes, it, but in a, it, the, under the, a complainer, the, as I said, the mm-hmm. distillation is if we were looking for something to ha- anchor on, aside from the imaging, which we could say is serendipity. He has active hepatitis C, and he has he has the other diseases. That, well, he has diabetes. And presumably coronary artery disease and hypertension haven't been cured by anything. So, so, so the one thing we know is that he, he does have bivirology. His mm-hmm. hepatitis C virus is active. Do you find that that's an adequate explanation for the other findings that you've, uh, kind of, like um, your problem list? Do you think those think things that, are attributable well, I think to it, I don't know that it's a, I don't know it's an explanation, but it's certainly one of the active issues rather than, you know, I visited Italy once. And here are my pictures. <laughs> that doesn't seem like an issue. That sounds no. that sounds really great. Yeah. Okay, so a uh, patient is seen by GIM, and in their history, they they find just a, a one other item on review. So they find that he has very mild ocular and oral sicca. Does that uh, crack the case for you oh, too? Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> okay, <laughs> no. So 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 he has some repeat labs done. <laughs> Don't worry that that actually that doesn't that doesn't come up again. Okay, so he has some repeat labs done about two months later. So what Danny, count? Danny, can I interrupt just for a second? In just historical, mm. if we if we asked most sixty four year olds with this these comorbid conditions if they had a dry mouth, I, I don't know this, but I have a dry mouth at night. <gasps> I'm just saying. I gasped. Yes, I know. It's it's a shock to most people, but right. so how do you make the diagnosis of ocular and oral sicca? Uh, I think it's contextual and I think it's by severity. So I, usually I ask them if they have daily troublesome dry eyes or dry mouth uh, over the last three months. And if they look upward and go, <laughs> um, then it's like I, I, I almost want to, you know, put a finger over their lips and be like, don't worry about it. Like, okay, like if if you have to think about it, then it it probably isn't like rises to the level of pathology. That's not always true, of course. So, but, but yeah, I'm looking for troublesome symptoms or certainly if it's oral sicca, then are you getting like cavities, dental caries, uh, difficulty swallowing, you know, ocular sicca, blurred vision, gritty sensation. Do you feel like your eyelids are stuck to your eyes, stuff like that, uh, recurrent. 
corneal erosion. That's really helpful. That actually is very helpful. And I, I guess you can't roll your eyes up because they're so dry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's part of it too. Okay, so here's some new labs. This is uh the the GIM sent this. So white count of seven, hemoglobin of one twenty one, platelets of one forty six, calcium's normal, bilia is five, triglycerides are normal, ALT is forty five, ALP one twenty nine, GGT is seventy five, creatinine is eighty five with the GFR of eighty four. C3 is low at 0.45, but that's quite mild. C4 is unmeasurably low. ANA, ENA, AMA are all negative. So that's the that's the basics that were sent. Is there anything else you would like? This is, I mean, this this is a shot in the dark thing. But um, have you spoken to the radiologist? Like, if, if you think that he has sort of unexplained swelling of the pancreas. I know, you mm-hmm. know, Barry and I we talk about IgG4 disease all the time, but, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know if there's, if there's pathognomonic findings for that, but if he has, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I'm just wondering about infiltrative things and, you know, this, this very low C4 with a normal C3, it's not ringing a bell for me, but I'm sure it is for you. I, should I be, should, should that be ringing a bell for me? I don't know. Barry, what do you think? Oh boy. Um, uh, the answer is yes. I actually probably, so I probably wouldn't have ordered the C3 and C4. So I can, I can back off that just for the interpretation. And I agree with Steph. I think the, uh, the issue of infiltrative diseases of the pancreas are ones that are raised, Mm -hmm. but I think infiltrative diseases of the pancreas with the understanding of hepatitis C and, and back to the portal vein thrombosis and the potential wedge infarcts in the kidneys. So I don't think I've I've moved the needle very much. I've just made some observations and I still don't see I don't see the bigger picture and I guess I don't see the sim, the, the the one thing I got the bike handle. I got that that part I'm pretty that, clear that you've on. wrapped your head around, right? <laughs> yeah. I I've, I'm pretty clear on. <laughs> what I don't have is that this vomiting daily. I don't understand it, it, from the description it doesn't make I I just can't put it together. So I'm still in the dark and, and, and data collecting. Okay. So the, the GIM who saw this patient repeats his imaging and, and this time includes a CT chest in, in addition to abdo pelvis. So here's what it said. CT chest, abdo pelvis, several scattered nodules bilateral throughout the lungs, chronic sausage pancreas with hypodensity halo and several prominent peripancreatic and pericaval lymph nodes, no pseudocyst, Slight increase in circumferential wall thickening of the common bile duct and associated narrowing of the lumen with stable intrahepatic biliary duct dilatation. There are still bilateral renal wedge-shaped hypodensities. Chronic splenic vein thrombosis and narrowing of the portal confluence are again demonstrated. So I'll just jump in by saying that at least there's a potential explanation for vomiting. (laughs) I'm sure sure he'll be thrilled to hear that you have (laughs) an answer to his vomiting. I'm I'm not certain that I, I mean, I I can make up a story probably that would, and and with Steph's thoughts about IgG4 and and other infiltrating, I could make up a story, but at least this gives me some potential explanation for understanding his vomiting. So, so because IgG4 has been raised, do you guys think this is IgG4? Does this sound like it? Yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, he he's what, IgG4 is raised, and and he's got 
He's got an enlarged pancreas. He's got no other explanation that we can see. And he's per, and he has a chronic or subacute, I guess, minimal, I guess, chronic problem that comes and goes. And, and so I guess, and, and new findings. So he's got vascular issues. So I think that it's, when, when I think, I mean, the whole spectrum of sarcoid, Castleman's, lymphoma, IgG4, those, depending on organ systems involved, I mean, we could priorize those, but I don't think we have, I mean, it's just a guess. I don't think we have enough information to go any which way. Okay. <laughs> so I, um, I, I was sort of being being flippant there. Like, I don't mean to say yes, I think this is for sure IgG4 disease. I mean, I don't think anything sort of, like, I wouldn't know if something was IgG4 disease if it, if it showed up and slapped me in the face. But I think there's enough here <laughs> to start the testing for IgG4 disease. That's all I, that's all I mean to say. Okay. So, so to that end, you get, you, you, you start off and you get your quantitative immunoglobulins and your IgG comes back at 29, which is Whoa, huge. That's, that's huge. And so you get subclasses on that and IgG comes back at 10. But you note that it was it was actually done previously during uh, his last visit to like his initial visit to a hospital, and it was barely elevated as one point five. So it's gone from one point five to ten point two with an upper limit of normal of one point two five. So it's I, this is you talking about IgG or what the, or the subclasses? That was the IgG four. IgG four, yes. So it and went from one point five. Yeah, the subclasses to 10. are are normal. Yes. They're fine. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so what do you, what does so what is the what is the meaning of this? Because we also know that there's a, a fairly broad differential for elevated IgG four, and I'm just going to fill in a couple of categories here. So, if you have an elevated IgG four in the serum, autoimmune diseases, including ankyovasculitis, rheumatoid, lupus, uh, systemic sclerosis, Sjogren's, GI disorders like acute pancreatitis, autoimmune hepatitis, chronic pancreatitis, chronic hepatitis, cirrhosis and even ulcerative colitis can cause an elevation. Lymphoproliferative disorders, and, and uh, Barry, you mentioned Castleman, sarcoid, uh, those are on the list. And then other things like allergies and asthma can also elevate the IgG4. So it is not the most specific finding. So with that in mind, has it, it, it led you to a, a diagnosis? And, and sorry, just to add to that, uh, Dr. Molly Carruthers, who actually works out here in Vancouver, I believe during her fellowship, I'm not 100% sure about that. Maybe just after, published a paper with John Stone, um, who's a big researcher in mm -hmm. IgG4, and they set the sensitivity at about 90%, specificity at about 60%, with a negative predictive value of around 96%, but a poor positive predictive value or a medium positive predictive value in a, a group of patients that they tested. And that was published in 2015. So with that as a background, um, have you reached a diagnosis? Does the clinical picture fit the labs and imaging? I think the only diagnosis aside from his chronic diagnostic uh, categories that you gave us is handlebar in the abdomen, uh, <laughs> NYD, okay. and uh, incidental findings. Okay, so so you're not you're not convinced of an IgG four diagnosis just yet. But I think that yeah, I think that step raised the possibility, and I think this is a good first step towards marching but that's mm -hmm. that's what it is it's a it's a first step that makes it 
more likely than it was before this step, yeah. but but that's it. So that's a good point. So on that basis, so this is actually when I become involved in the case, uh, the person was referred to me for the question of like, well, like that whole st- the story sounds kind of weird. Like, are these really features of IgG4 disease or is it coincidence or is it that he has chronic pancreatitis and that's causing the elevated IgG4? So when I see him, I go through that history and I repeat some labs and complete some labs that I didn't see before, including I could not find an earlier just basic urinalysis. So when I see him, his creatinine has risen to 100. His GFR has dropped from 84 to 60s, to low 60s. His urinalysis shows 5 plus protein and 0.3 hemoglobin. His lipase is still normal. It's 30. His IgE is uh, significantly elevated at 3,200. And then again, his C3 is low and his C4 is unmeasurably low. His inflammatory markers are normal. And I believe someone else repeated some labs like about two weeks after my set of labs and his creatinine had jumped to 130 with a GFR of 40. Mm. So when now? Well, if we repeat the labs in another couple of weeks, we'll probably have more information that, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's still, I mean, by the time we, we can either wait till everything shuts down or everything so opens up, but yeah, I don't, it's, I don't see it doesn't shed any more light on this situation for me. I mean, I think the things we've talked about are the things that I, I would consider. I don't, I don't, I mean, we could do more right. testing, but I'm not sure that we'd arrive at a, a diagnosis sorry to, sorry to interrupt but like i i think of sometimes like the decision to like let's uh repeat labs in two weeks yeah. is like you know when you're i'm a trash bowler so when i bowl and i like i, I bowl the ball and then i like lean i'm like ooh, like scoot over <laughs> right like you're trying to like will the ball yeah. to to move i feel like that's sometimes the same with labs that you're like willing you're like okay well if everyone just if everything just kind of resets itself then like I, yeah. I don't have to explain that like i don't have to do the like work of solving whatever is going on in this guy's kidneys if it just like returns to normal and yeah. i go <laughs> i think i think there's i think there's some of that i think there's also like you know a trend of someone la- someone's labs in addition to to how they're feeling clinically can give you some guardrails to understand how quickly how much time you have how quickly you need to figure this thing out you know i think also, what it's what it's reminding me is that it's it's easier to biopsy the kidneys than the pancreas, so <laughs> right. um, so we're probably you know and and in as in so many of these cases we're going to be shortly here talking about getting tissue I'm sure and so yeah it sounds like the kidneys will be a a nice spot like obviously you know and and I think the other thing that I, that crossed my mind as you were sort of listing the the diseases associated with elevated levels of IgG four. I think that's a really good habit to be into. So so these are not cases, pro, even Molly Carruthers is not seeing these cases every single day, right? Like we, we, because now we can test thousands of things, you can't be familiar with everything and have everything at the tips of your fingers. So so someone thought to, to measure IgG4, thing comes back positive. So you say to yourself, okay, is this IgG4 disease? I think that's a sort of a normal reflex thing to say. I think the next thought should be, I don't know anything about IgG4 and IgG4 disease. So before I go too far down that one very narrow path, I'm going to stop and ask myself, what other significance might this IgG4 have? And mm-hmm. and so then you go through that list. He already has some of those conditions. Maybe he's got hepatitis. Maybe he's got chronic pancreatitis. I don't know. And then you say, okay, well, could this be an allergic condition? Could this be an infectious condition? Could this be an inflammatory bowel disease or whatever? 
And then you take that list and make it a much shorter list of, of viable mm-hmm. possibilities of viable right. paths to pursue. And and then and then now you have this new finding of sounding like rapidly progressive renal disease. So then you have to you have to fit that new bit of, of information into this short list that you've come up with. And mm-hmm. does IgG four is is there an IgG four related kidney disease? Okay, yes, there is. Can it be a proteinuric kidney disease? Okay, yes, it can. So now that that also, you know, it it fits and maybe some other things that were on that short list start falling off. So that that's practically being the dummy that I am. That's practically how I work through a case <laughs> like this, honestly. I, I but but I think there, there's one other issue. There's one other piece of information. So a lot of the explanation can fall back to the hepatitis C and the diabetes and the other and the medications. But we're given the two pieces of inf- well, the C four is absent. But piece of information, I guess that. I'm having difficulty explaining, but I'm not sure I would have ordered, is the IgE. Hmm. And so there's a large element of IgE. And I think it probably, if you look at population studies in IgE, I don't know percentages, but I I would say probably greater than 90% of those would be related to allergic issues Mm -hmm. of some Mm -hmm. sort. But we don't have to, I mean, we haven't heard a history about that. And so there are a small percentage of patients with IgE that have, that have an IgE myeloma. That, and, uh, and if we're looking for explanations that might involve thrombophilia, the uh, explanation of uh, systemic disease and infiltration, I think that's just another hooker, I suppose, in this. It's an isolated phenomenon. I wouldn't want to go and say this is what it is, but it it it, it hangs out there for me. That's in in a different sense. Mm-hmm. I think I might have blacked out there for a second. How high was the IgE? Thirty two hundred. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's huge. I mean, I think the other. So again, we're, we're talking about how we how we think through these cases. Um, I know that Jake Onrot would say like that he's often looking for a key log. He's looking, you know, when you're trying to look for the log that's going to help you release the log jam. And and key logs come in different forms. Sometimes the key log is a symptom that you have a good approach to, a symptom that you recognize easily. Sometimes the key log is a really weird symptom. Sometimes the key log is a really striking and specific lab abnormality, you know? And so, so again, I, that same thing that you did with the IgG4 I would then go on to do with the IgE, recognizing that IgE can, modest IgE, elevation, IgE elevations are very nonspecific, but 3,200 is pretty high, you know? Yeah, pretty I'd be, juicy. I'd be either sort of reading about that or talking to an allergist to say like, wait a second, what, what do you think of this IgE of 3,000? Like that's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty high. And there, there was no use in affiliate with any of that? No, actually, the the differential is normal. So that may be a key log. I, I I'm not. I don't know what to do with it just yet. But I, that that's another thing that I'd be looking up. I, I think one thing as a learner with, um, that I learned from both of you is both to consider like the key log. Like if you don't have to solve every single bit of the case that is like everything that's askew, because when you look at a patient's blood work, there's a million things that are slightly abnormal, mm-hmm. but they probably don't solve the case. So either you find something that's so specific that like it really narrows it down to, you know, five things right. um, to investigate. I think on the flip side of that is like sometimes the syndrome is so specific, like there's just not a lot of things that can do all of these bits mm-hmm. and pieces. Mm-hmm. So I think like, and Steph, you say this all the time, like I would, I would have no ego about typing 
all of these things into Google mm-hmm. um, or into, you know, doing a, a thoughtful search through PubMed or up to date or wherever, whatever your resource is and be like, okay, so pancreatic abnormalities, maybe we'll call it pancreatitis. I don't know, whatever. Um, but bulky pancreas, splenic vein thrombosis, wedge-shaped hypoattenuation in the liver, pulmonary nodules, proteinuria, elevated IgE, mm-hmm. you know, ele- elevated uh, or decreased renal function. Maybe at that point, um, the non-specific things that have huge differentials like nephrotic syndrome, maybe it narrows down to like a really small group. So I, I think like that's uh, that I definitely learned through working with the two of you. I think that issue here is what you've said. It's the recognition of issues you're going to bring to Google. Mm -hmm. So you can bring everything to Google. You can bring vomiting. You can bring any one of his symptoms. You can bite bike handle to the abdomen to Google. That one I think I've I've got. I, I think yeah, I but but I but but I like what you've done because I mean recognizing a constellation of findings that you're going to bring to Google is not an easy task sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that I, I mean, we, we say this flippantly, like, well, Google will solve the problem, but you actually have to present Google the problem to solve. Yeah, I, I've often thought right. this. I feel like this should almost be like part of our day-to-day teaching or, or, or like a course somewhere that you do in, in medical school, which is how do you talk to Google? I think I think yeah. it's it's yeah. so critical. Like, how do you turn your your thoughtful observations of a case and your data collection into something that Google can actually go and work on, go and help you with? Um, because right. if you if you just put a bunch of those, like you're you're talking about the list that you were just saying, Dan, you're looking kind of for this Venn diagram of of okay, I got this finding and this finding and this finding and this finding. What does Google do with that? Google's not going to do anything with that. That's going to be a disaster, especially if you put, start putting things in like like kidney disease, you know, it's too much or vomiting. It's too much. But if you put in like sausage pancreas, IgG4, IgE, I'd maybe start with those things or something like that, you know, or those things plus nephrotic syndrome. And then Mm -hmm. you might find something spicy. Totally. Okay. So I'm going to give you some spicy news then. You want it spicy, you get it spicy. So the next step, the next thing that happened in this case was a renal biopsy. Bingo. Yeah, so we'll jump right to it. And so here's the finding on renal biopsy. Diffuse diabetic nephropathy. <laughs> no, let me finish. Sorry, that, that is what it showed, but it also showed a second important finding. Moderate involvement by plasma cell-rich tubulointerstitial inflammation consistent with IgG4-related renal disease. You know, Reactions. I, I think I'd love, in my next life, I'm going to be a doctor called consistent with. Mm-hmm. Because that makes me right when I'm right and innocent when I'm wrong. So there is no diagnosis here. There's just consistency. If you have the diagnosis, this could go along with that. I love it. Yeah. So, okay. So as far as our biopsy has gotten us, our tissue diagnosis suggests that this is IgG4 disease. Mm-hmm. And for listeners, a little bit of background there. So there, there's classically four phenotypes. And group one is pancreo sorry, pancreatopatobiliary disease, typically seen in older men. Group two is retroperitoneal fibrosis and aortitis. Group three is head and neck limited disease. And that is more common, interestingly, in women and in in childhood onset IgG4 disease, more head and neck limited. Then group four is the classic McCulloch syndrome and systemic involvement. Now, 60 to 90% of IgG4 disease will be multi-organ. 
though you still can have uni- you know single organ disease. And IgG4 serum levels may actually vary by race, so it seems to be higher in Asian patients. Now, the next can, step can, then... Danny, can I add one more thing? I, th- I think IgE is elevated in certain components of IgG4 disease. Yeah, so so the reason that, that when I saw him, I sent an IgE was because I do think that that narrows the differential yeah. somewhat because I don't associate an elevated IgE with pancreatitis or cirrhosis or a bunch of the other things on the list, but it is very common in IgG4 disease. And I think clinically, I do not feel that this is allergic or asthma related Mm -hmm. disease. And so therefore, I can say like, okay, those are the like other two really common causes of elevated IgE that I know about. So you know, what what's left over. So that was the reason for sending the Were you surprised that it was so high? Um, I think at that point, I was so suspicious that this was IgG4 related disease that I, I think, I think that that was like, just consistent with. Okay. I was similar to you folks, uh, a little bit shocked at the extent of the hypocomplementemia. And so I had to fill in some knowledge gaps there. And I'll, I'll give you a bit of, of info on that in a moment. So IgG4 related renal disease is an important part of the disease. It is seen in, in, in some cohorts that I saw 10 to 15% of patients with IgG4, less in other ones. But the most common pattern is one that I actually haven't seen that often, which is tubulointerstitial nephritis, though you can also get membranous GN and sometimes both. There's rare cases of IgA nephritis, minimal change disease, uh, membranoproliferative GN. So there are there is kind of a, a spectrum there, but by far and away, the most common was uh, TIN. The imaging features features include multiple low-density lesions, and they are typically wedge-shaped lesions, very rare to see solitary lesions in the kidneys. So actually, the wedge-shaped lesions that we saw were actually mm-hmm. quite consistent. That's mm-hmm. the most common feature. Mm-hmm. IgG4 is elevated in up to 90% of IgG4-related renal disease. So it's, it's even more common to have an elevated IgG4 if you have renal disease related to IgG4. And most of these patients have systemic involvement. So it's very rare to have renal limited IgG4. That would be like case report level. So I thought that all of those things kind of added credence, like it kind of pulled together some of these bits of the case that I was like, gee, is that like, I don't really know what to do with renal hypodensity is maybe that's a hypercoagulable state or a vascular issue. The the other thing is that hypocomplementemia is primarily in IgG4 seen in those with renal disease. Mm. So that indicated at least a link between, you know, the global picture of IgG4 and the renal disease that we are dealing with now, that perhaps this isn't just bad diabetic nephropathy that we weren't aware of. This is actually part of active disease. So that was kind of the, um, that was kind of the detective work there. So with that in mind, I'll kind of return to the the case. So with all of that, I I thought that that was a fairly convincing story for IgG4 disease, and that was the diagnosis that we gave. He was started on Maverit for his hepatitis C. Uh, And I should just say, just because hypocomplementemia is common in cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, his cryos were negative. So there you go. Started on Maverit for his hep C, and that was in preparation for immune suppression, though many of the immune suppressants aren't likely to reactivate uh, or like activate hep C or turn hep C into fulminant hepatitis. Mm-hmm. But uh, we thought that that was safest. And then the the tricky part here was the decision about treatment. So the most common treatment is monotherapy with prednisone for around three plus months with repeat imaging to make sure that they have imaging response as well as any symptomatic improvement. But in this case, we already knew that he was a brittle diabetic with DKA in the past. 
He had Cushing weight side effects when he was on prednisone for a single month, and he had a previous upper GI bleed. So all of those things made us a little bit hesitant. He was also on aspirin, but we were a little bit hesitant to use prednisone unless it was absolutely required. And and most people do require some amount of prednisone, but we, we wanted to try at least to treat him prednisone free. And we so we gave him two doses of rituximab in April of this year. And his June labs that came back showed complete normalization of his C3, C4. His IgG4 dropped uh, by about two thirds. His renal function, however, has not really changed. It's it's about the same. And one of the issues here is that between the time that we got his urinalysis back and and decided this was IgG4 disease, he was actually really hard to um, contact. So so he actually didn't end up getting his biopsy for over a month from when we found the proteinuria, and he didn't uh, end up starting the rituximab for another two months or so, despite our uh, best attempt. So he he still has persistent proteinuria and decreased renal function, but otherwise symptomatically he feels fine, like he kind of says he has all along. So what do you guys think? I think that Steph is an excellent uh, clinical reasoner. I think that he saw the issues of the pancreas as not pancreatitis and uh, and looked at the possibilities of this organ and being involved in a systemic disease. And I think that uh, he's right. I guess the only question I have is, uh, is he still vomiting? You know what? That's a great question. I tried to call him today to find out that exact question, and uh, I couldn't get in touch with him. So I actually don't know about the vomiting in particular. It's a good question. It's uh, It's the only thing that was bothering him, right? That was his problem. Yeah. (laughs) My problem was all the lab work that that was terrifying, right? Uh, He's not as fussed about that. So good, good point. Patient-centered care would require that I ask him about his vomiting, and I will. But I think the other thing that I would say is that um, it, it raises the, I mean, it we were solving problems that we recognized that may have contributed to his problems. And I think the only, uh, and, and we had tissue. I mean, so even though it wasn't the classical storyiform pathology that you would see in IgG4, it was, and I guess I have to eat my words about Doctor suggestive, but suggestive in this case is compatible with all the other suggestions. And so how many suggestions do you need to make a diagnosis? And I guess that <laughs> that's where we're at. Right. I think, you know, my, think, fe- my feeling is like, I don't know, there's a few, there's many diagnoses out there that just make me uncomfortable. Like I, um, I, 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 I'm like a sort of history of medicine buff and and I think we sometimes have this ego of like, oh, we've got it all figured out, you know? We we understand exactly like the pathophysiology of every illness that we encounter. And and to me, IgG4 is one in a huge lump of illnesses that I think our understanding right now is pretty incomplete. Like Yeah. Like it's like what what really causes sarcoidosis, <laughs> you know? What really causes sarcoidosis? What really causes IgG4 disease? Like, I, I think we've got a right. dis, we've got a descriptive diagnosis, and and all of the associated problems with that diagnosis have been described, but I don't mm-hmm. understand it at all. Like, I don't understand what the initial insult is and and whatever. So, yeah, IgG4, man, I don't know. Like, it feels like in twenty years or thirty years or whatever, we're gonna have a better handle on on this one. And right now we just don't. It's such a thoughtful question. And and I would say like a lot of patients too, like at some point in their care, like 
how did I get this? Like, <laughs> what is it? And and I go, oh, like I, yeah. I I feel like such a such an idiot. Like I shrug at them. I, I I do a little more than that, but like even with like other more fully described diseases like ankylosis or lupus, right? Like we're, we're just we're babies when it comes mm-hmm. to understanding the deeper biology and pathophysiology of these diseases. And I think the immune system is one of the like is a major component of biology that is just like it is just it is beyond our uh, our comprehension at the moment. Like it is just it is just too complex. Right. Or at I least it around. is for me. So, so yeah, I don't really no, I want to be around when we lose the na- the phenotypic names and deal with the cytokine names. Yeah. But the cytokine names will be the mediators. And then I hope, but I won't be around when we have the etiologic names. Mm-hmm. And to, to me, it feels like like some of these things, many of them, there's some, so so the mediator is your immune system. The like roadmap is your genome. And then your environment is the thing that, that sets off the illness. Your environment, right. either some toxin or some infection that you're exposed to sets everything off. And until right. we have probably and, political, I think it's very political. But it, until we have explanations at that level of of clarity or granularity, I'm just gonna yeah. feel kind of stuck. And and you know, like this is not this comes up with me a lot. Like I have this this fibromyalgia practice, and right now we have a really good description of fibromyalgia. But for the love of me, I cannot find, and and even the mediators are are not clear. But I cannot mm-hmm. find a satisfying description or, or anywhere close to satisfying description of what actually is going on in there. And, and until we have that, we have a lot of, of stigma and judgment towards those patients. And, and even to the point of self stigma and self judgment, people are saying, what's wrong with me? Am I just lazy? What, you know, what, what is, what's up? And, and eventually in 30 years from now, we'll have some physiological pathophysiological explanation for those patients. And the medical community is going to offer a huge mea culpa to the fibromyalgia community. That's what I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think about that a lot when people tell me that their uh, joint pain gets worse in cold weather. Right, right, like things like that. That's like everyone has heard that for like when the weather's changing, right? Like high pressure system rolls in and my knee gets swollen. Right, like I'm sore when like, I'm when that I get is, stressed out. Right, like it is so common to hear that that it is it is hard to believe that there is no biologic basis for it why or how that happens i I have no idea like that's that's well beyond my understanding of how the immune system works i didn't think that it was really manipulated by the weather you know weather pressure clouds or anything but it's it's too hard to ignore and so i think that you know at least staying right so I, i think like humility is kind of maybe a through line between like this diagnosis and not saying like oh an igg4 is positive so you have igg4 disease and i know that you have it so i'm going to give you a bunch of prednisone right stop and lo- like remind yourself at least what the list of other things that elevate an igg4 is pay attention to what patients say because there's there is definitely truth mm. to what they're telling you and the diagnosis is probably in there somewhere isn't it funny too that you know we're like talk about ego this this guy came to us on the right treatment. <laughs> he came to us on prednisone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, That's right. Yeah. I want, yeah. <laughs> I want to go to where he went in another part of the the Canada. I assume, yeah. uh, assume to find out that he was being treated appropriately. Those are some right. Good so so it's it so it sounds like he was diagnosed with IgG four disease like two years ago, and oh, we've God. just crept our way to that diagnosis like as it was starting to damage his kidneys spleen lungs pancreas um oh, so yeah absolutely very cool 
Very, well, very, thank you guys very, for very uh, humble on your part, Danny, and very astute on your part, Steph. Yeah, thanks. That, that was a that's a cool case. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We are produced by Nikki Thorpe of Bronet Consulting. Our show notes are thoughtfully prepared by Jeffrey Yi. We are supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will all talk again soon. Mm-hmm.